So this evening is July 26, 2017. The message this evening is called a holy mixture. Who wants a holy mixture? Man, if you've ever worked on an engine, if you've ever made a fire, you have to have the right mixture to get it going. There is a heavenly mixture, a holy mixture we're going to discuss tonight. And then we're going to spark a fire in this room and see if we can burn out all the hellish things that have tried to attack each one of us. Amen? Do y'all want to win? Does anybody want to win? I want to win and we're going to win tonight. While we're on this subject, how many elements do you think there are in the holy anointing oil of God? Just call it out. (laughs) I love this. So many times in our church, the answer is seven. It's always seven. We talk about hepatic structures. We're all about seven. The sevenfold promise of God to Abraham But in the anointing oil of God, turn to Exodus 30, there are exactly five elements. In Exodus 30, we're going to look at those five elements and relate them to our lives. A very straightforward message. Now, my math is not all of that good. I barely was in school when I was there. I spent my time suspended and being sent away. But how short of seven is five. What's the missing two? One of the beautiful things about grace is it takes God extending it to you and it takes you receiving it. Grace by itself, unacted upon, unmoved upon, is of no effect in your life. But when God extends it and you receive and work in it, then you have a complete work in your life. We're going to talk about how to go from five to seven tonight. Amen. Amen. In Exodus 30, beginning in verse 22, then the Lord said to Moses, take the following fine spices. Somebody say fine spices. spices. Oh, come on now. Don't you want to see Justin Linton say fine spices? Take the following fine spices. 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is 250 shekels for those of you educated like me, of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant cane, 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel, and a hen of olive oil. I want to show you these five elements. It's our first slide. They begin with myrrh. And then cinnamon, then fragrant cane, cassia, and olive oil. When we think of five, it's important to know that the king of kings, he likes to count things. Now, I don't like to count things. Alex Adarmes is taking care of his family somewhere this evening. Alex likes to count things for a living. He hires people that count things. It's what he does. I don't like to count things. But when God counts something, there is a reason. I'm going to rattle off some scriptures for you just to show you how God counts things. In Job 14, 16, you're going to stay with me here because I'm going to go quick with these. In Job 14, 16, surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. 
God counts the steps that you take in a day. That's a long time before we had pedometers. That's a long time before you had a little app on your phone to tell you how many steps you took in a day. In Job, I'm sorry, in Psalm 90, in verse 12, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. God wants us to count and take stock of our days correctly. In Psalm 147.4, he determines the number of stars and he calls them each by name. Are you getting the impression that God is a mathematical God? In Daniel 5.26, this is what these words mean. Meaning, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. President Obama, President Trump, President Bush, God numbered the days that they would be in office. God likes to number things. It's not just an Older Testament principle. It's found in the Newer Testament. How many of you recognize Matthew 10.30? And even the very hairs of your head are all what? Now, can I tell you? That's a difficult thing to do because that number is changing every day in my life. The hairs on the top of my head are running scared down my neck and replanting themselves on my shoulders and back. And yet God is keeping track of the numbers of hairs on your head. That's incredible. It makes me wonder what happens with Daniel. When he came in this church, he was bald. Now he's got a head full of hair, but God keeps track of the count. He likes to number things. Do you think that he picked five at random? Why did he choose five specific things for his anointing oil? You know, theologians often say five is the number of grace. Maybe that's because five dominates Exodus 25 to 40. When you look at Exodus 25 to 40, it's the subject matter of the tabernacle. In building the tabernacle, 23 times the unit of measurement is a five. Maybe it's because in Leviticus, also in the law, the first five chapters have five sacrifices. Maybe you might notice that in the prophets, a would-be king, a man who would become king, picked up how many smooth stones to kill that giant? Five. You may have noticed that as you get into the book of Psalms, there's 150 Psalms, but they're divided into five books. Exactly. It doesn't stop there. As you move into the Newer Testament with five loaves, Jesus fed how many? Thousand men? Five thousand men. Five is a number that indicates grace in the Bible. And so when God chose five ingredients, He was signifying to you that these five were chosen for a reason. None of them are wasted. There can be no additions to it. There can be no subtractions from it. He wanted to communicate a message of grace to you. His Bible is one integrated design from beginning to end, law, prophets, writings. He stays consistent in his imagery. He stays consistent in the prophetic interpretation and five represents grace throughout the word. As we look at these five things then and we know that they represent grace, our message tonight is going to have to start with what grace really is. Is that fair enough? Acts 4, verse 33. 
Say there when you're there. In Acts 4, 33, with great power, what kind of power? With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. I want you to notice just a handful of times, but they're all over the word. When there is grace mentioned, there is power mentioned. Grace is not the erasing of your sin. Grace is not the I'm sorry and so it didn't happen of your sin. Grace is actually power to stop sinning. Grace is the power of God that shows up among people to prove that God's supernatural power is with them. In Acts 6 verse 8, you'll see that. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power. Do you hear how they go together? They're expressions of each other. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders in miraculous signs among the people. The purpose for the miraculous signs in the great wonders was to show that there was a powerful grace in the man. See, if he could do a miracle, if he could uh, shine like the face of Jesus while he's being stoned, if he can forgive people who have murderous intentions towards him, it shows that there is a heavenly power at work inside of him, the kind of power that overcomes sin. Grace is the power over sin. Somebody say, grace, grace is, is power over sin. When we're talking about what it means to be anointed, you cannot be anointed without power over sin. You might be gifted, but what grace is and what the anointing of God is, is his divine enablement to defeat sin in your life. So when we ask for grace, we're not asking just to say we're sorry. We're not saying, Lord, pretend it didn't happen. When you ask for grace, you're saying, Lord, empower me from on high so that that never happens in my life again. Oh, come on. How many of you want some grace? Acts 11, 23. When he arrived, the he here is Barnabas. When he arrived and saw the evidence, somebody say evidence. evidence. Oh, come on now. This is the smoking gun. This is the proof. This is the glove that O.J. couldn't put on, right? When he arrived and saw the evidence of God's grace, he was glad. Grace is something that evidence accompanies. If you say you have power over sin, do you know how it shows up? You stop sinning. The reason that the supernatural message of the gospel is accompanied by great signs and wonders is as a witness that these people are able to live differently than other men. How many of you remember when your life was trapped in sin? When you promised you would never do it again and before the week was out you had broken your promise. After a while you got so discouraged at the lack of grace in your life that when you said you were sorry, you knew you were going to do it again and again and again. 
You know what that is, friends? That's slavery to sin. When we are slaves, it is because the grace of God is not working with effect in our life. You may know what grace is. You may have heard of grace. You may have experienced grace. But you are not living in the power of God's grace. See, God wants us to know grace and power as a unit. They go together. Anybody that says they have a grace that is not powerful, they have a greasy grace. They have some kind of license for immorality. A get out of sin free card. It doesn't work that way. It is an agonizing battle. But God himself gives you power over sin. Amen? In Acts 14, verse 3. How many is that in Acts now? Four. You can find seven in the first 11 chapters. But let's just take Acts 14. Acts 14, verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. Speaking boldly for the Lord. Who confirmed the message of his. Confirmed the message of his. By enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. If there was no sign, if there was no wonder, if there was nothing miraculous, if there is no evidence, then how would you know you had a message of grace? See, all over this country and in many countries in the world, men and women claim to have received the grace of God. They claim to have been regenerated by God's Holy Spirit and yet they have no power over sin. And when you have no power over sin, then you cannot have had God's grace in your life. So what we have then are masses that believe that they're under the grace of God, when in reality they have never experienced it. That is a problem. Come on now. Somebody say, we got a problem. I don't want a powerless, graceless gospel. One that promises us trinkets. One that offers us fairy dust from the heavens, but leaves us slaves to sin. The real gospel frees you from sin. The real gospel enters your life, changes who you are, and where you couldn't control your temper before, God's grace is there to control your temper now. Where you couldn't beat back that demon of lust, now it is subdued and defeated under the foot of King Jesus because His grace is at work in your life. It is not grace to say, I sinned, but I'm forgiven. That is not grace. To say, I sinned and I'm going to sin tomorrow and I'm just a sinner and I'll probably always sin, but I'm under grace. That is a lie. We're just old sinners. Then you haven't experienced the grace of God. Because the grace of God frees you from sin. I want to prove that to you. Turn with me to Titus 2. When you find Titus 2, find verse 11. I meet more miserable sinners that want to come to the Lord and they're thinking about coming to the Lord and they sit in our churches. They sit in this room and they want to come to the Lord, but they're scared that their commitment when they pray to the Lord, they will not be able to keep. And they would rather sit among us as lost men than claim that they're saved knowing that they're ongoing sin. 
That's happening in this church. I have more respect for that than those that claim to be in grace but are living in sin. At least these men know who they are and where they are. Sometimes I call their names from the pulpit and we'll keep doing it. But grace will set you free. See, the problem with a powerless gospel is it becomes a facade. It becomes a joke. The person sitting next to you doesn't believe that if they call on the name of Jesus, they'll actually be freed from their sin. They think that they'll just be more guilty because they said they would follow him, and now they can't. It's a powerless gospel. It's a form of godliness, but it has no power. The actual gospel of God is this. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It, what is the it here? Grace Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. If you're not saying no to ungodliness, if you're not saying no to worldly passions, then you have a graceless gospel. Oh, let that sink in for a minute. How often... Do we hear, well, I'm only human. I know I sin, but praise God for the grace of God. The grace of God actually teaches you not to sin. It's not a license for you to sin. It teaches you not to sin. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-right. I'm sorry, and to live self-controlled, upright And godly lives in this present age. How would you know if grace had appeared to somebody with effect then? They're going to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. When? In the age to come? When? In the present age. So if your life is not upright, if it's not self-controlled, if it is not godly, then you have not experienced grace and you sit in your sin while you sit with saints. Oh, church, could there be a more serious subject? Could there be a more piercing subject for us to deal with than sin inside the house of God? We're not talking about grace because we want to continue in sin. We're talking about grace because we want freedom from sin. Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. Does Jesus forgive you for sin? Yes. He redeems you from all wickedness. But what's the next word? And to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Oh, come on, man. Grace will purify you. You might get saved by the blood of Jesus, but it is grace and grace alone that purifies you. Have you been purified? Are you claiming the grace of God while you are repeating the same habitual sin? It is not possible to live in sin and enter the kingdom of God. This is why when the Bible addresses it, it simply says, and this is what you were, but now you have been washed, sanctified, justified. It's a past tense thing. Your very nature changes when the grace of God enters your life. Your habits change. Your desires change. 
We name this life changing ministries because you know when the grace of God has appeared in a man's life because everything about his life changes. We've lived too long in this sewer of dissipation that says we're attached to Christ but don't expect to see it in our lives. We love Jesus but don't expect our actions to show it. That is a graceless gospel. Verse 15. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke mildly. With all authority, do not let anyone despise you. You cannot like what I'm saying, but that won't make it any less true. And none of you can prove me wrong. So we'll have to deal with the truth of the gospel. When grace appears to you, it frees you from sin. And if you're still in your sin, it's because grace has not appeared in your life. Oh man, so how much grace is in your life? See, we tend to speak about grace and quantify it precisely by the amount of sin we're in. Well, I know that I'm bitter. I know I have this unforgiveness. I, I know that I keep doing this over and over and over. I know that I'm at war with all of mankind. But praise God for the grace of God. That is not what the grace of God is. It's never been what the grace of God is. It is a supernatural display of something distinctly outside of the ordinary human's capability. It is power over sin. What once enslaved you no longer has a hold on you. And when you do slip in sin, it's no longer you. It's a foreign power working inside of you. And grace will hunt it down and kill it. Oh, come on now. You can sit here and feel condemned while we talk about grace. Or you can beg and ask the God of heaven to extend more grace to you. Because he's not unwilling. We just don't know of our very great need. Our theologians have lied to us. Our environment has prepared us to live like hellions all the way to heaven. I want the grace of God in my life. In 1 Corinthians 15, pick up with me in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. How do you read that sentence now? Before, you probably read it as, hey, I'm kind of a screw up. I'm kind of failing, but you know, by the grace of God, I am what I am. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying everything that he has achieved, everything that has happened, everything that he is to the Corinthian church is the effect of supernatural power working in his life, having freed him from his old way of life. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I but the grace of God that was within me. How hard is grace working to set you free? Is it working with great effect? Are you working harder to be free from sin than the people around you? Or have you just decided that it's all covered under grace? Can I tell you that is a lie from hell? Ministries named grace don't understand why they've named their ministry. They don't even know what it is. 
Because when grace appears, it teaches you to say no to ungodliness. Grace is not an excuse for the sin you just committed. It's the power of God to not commit the next sin. Oh man, do you want some grace? I want you to hear, we've done law prophets writings in the Older Testament with the number five. Now we've done law prophets writings in the Newer Testament with the concept of grace. And here is the prophet. In the book of Revelation, in the first chapter... As the letter begins to be written to the churches in verse 4, the very beginning of the letter, the first statements that are made, John, to the seven churches of the provenance of Asia, grace and peace to you. What does he wish for them? Power over sin. He wants them to be in right order with God. Peace, shalom. He wants them to have power over sin. It's how he opens the letter, not to the lost. Who does he say it to? To the church. Because he knew that they would need great grace. He knew that they would be objects of mercy in desperate need of God's power over sin. Because sin would be warring at them trying to stomp out the witness of God. He probably never envisioned today. When the church would just all together surrender with a theological excuse. In fact, it's not just the first chapter and the first sentence in the book of Revelation. It's the last chapter and the last sentence in the book of Revelation. That's Revelation 22 and verse 21. He doesn't say, may the mercy of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. He doesn't say, may the forgiveness... Of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. By the time we've reached the end of the book of Revelation, there is only one thing that He wants for God's people the grace, the power of God to stop sinning, be with God's people. And then He ends it with the Hebrew word, Amen. So be it unto God. Man, Do you get the impression that in the 66 books of God's contiguous revelation that the last sentence might be the most important sentence? May God's divine power be with you to free you from the sin that has been killing you. Oh, come on, saint. How could we be content to live in sin if we can be freed from sin? Well, I have faith in Jesus. So do the demons have faith in Jesus. They know exactly who he is. They tremble at his name. What do you mean when you say you have faith in Jesus? It should be that you trust that he will give you the grace that you need to meet this temptation and overcome it. Do you expect to win? Because I want to win. I am tired of watching the body of Christ stumble and fall on its face for misunderstanding we don't know what is ours he will anoint us with a supernatural holy and heavenly mixture that will free you from your bondage to sin you don't have to sin anymore so well you just don't know what i've been through anybody watched our lives in the last few months come on saints You can bury your friends. You can bury your children. You can say goodbye to friendships decades old 
and still carry on because of the grace of God, the power of God working in you to free you from sin. Oh, do you want grace? I want greater grace in my life. We think grace is dignity. You know, boy, that Audrey Hepburn, she's full of grace. It's funny, we usually say it when she's in a movie about a whore. Grace is not dignity. It's not the way a ballerina carries herself. Grace is the unmitigated, unbridled, ungoverned, raw power of God working in you to defeat that which is warring against you. When we say grace, we don't mean that you wipe the corner of your mouth with a napkin or that you eat with utensils from the outside to the inside or that your meals are five course. What we mean is that the raw power of the Holy Ghost has been unleashed in your life and it is liberating you from sin. Oh, do you have that kind of power working in your life? Sometimes, sometimes we've been taught to say all of the right things. But we know when we go to bed at night that we live today very much like we lived the day before that. And tomorrow is probably more of the same. Shame on us if we accept a natural existence when you were meant for supernatural power. Do you want supernatural power? If you don't, you'd have to wonder what on earth did you wander in here for? Because we are going to fight and scratch and kick for every last person in here to be free from everything that has been warring against your soul. You do not have to walk around frustrated and depressed. You do not have to be covered in shame and disappointed. You can walk with your head held high, heaven smiling upon you, and it's not a lie. It's not a theological masquerade. It's because something once bound you, but it no longer has a hold on you. Oh, come on, man. When you've been really free, when you've been set free, you can stand and say, I'm free indeed. The church doesn't preach about sin because they're in sin. It's like an AA meeting. You never really get free. Even when you stop, you still have to go to the meetings, right? You still describe yourself 50 years after the effect as an alcoholic. You never change. It's living with the creeping sin that is right there, always about to come back. No, the grace of God can change you from what you were into something totally new. I want that grace of God. We're going to find out tonight that the five components of the anointing oil are a holy and heavenly mixture. And when you get the mixture right in your own life, it produces life and freedom and power and joy and godliness. It is a blessed life. The first item is myrrh. Myrrh is such an interesting thing. The town in the Bible, Smyrna, is today in Turkey, Ismir. It comes from a Hebrew root. At least many people who do the etymological research think that it does. Myrrh has to do with death. 
That's because this particular spice has to be crushed. And it symbolizes death. But it doesn't just symbolize death. Matthew 2.11 On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasuries and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, and of... Why would you give a newborn baby something that symbolizes death? Because his very life would be about the death of sin. In fact, there are two times in Jesus' life that you see him come into contact with myrrh. Once is when they acknowledge him as the born king here. The Magi from the east did it in Matthew 2. The next time is in John 19, 39. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. At Jesus' birth, when he was recognized as the king and the savior of the world, the kings from the east gave him myrrh. At Jesus' death, his body was wrapped in myrrh. This is because myrrh, the first ingredient in the sacred anointing oil, is really about life and death. Friends, until the anointing of God, until the supernatural heavenly empowerment for you becomes a matter of life and death, you cannot have it. He is not interested in being your hobby. He is not interested in being your occasional pick-me-up. He has no desire to date you. He's not your plaything. When it becomes for you a matter of life and death, something supernatural happens. Even if you die, you will live. When it becomes for you a matter of life and death, something changes. Listen to the way Deuteronomy 30.15 puts it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death, and destruction. How many of you see the choices daily that you were making as a matter of life and prosperity or death and destruction? Is that an abstract theological concept to you? Because the anointing of God will cause you to go, if I click here, I die and my life is destroyed. The anointing of God will cause you to go, if I can open this book and crawl to its pages and begin to focus on what the Lord says, it's life and prosperity. The anointing of God will never let you leave your Bible on the back dash of your car for a week, swelling in the sun. The anointing of God will not let you sit in sin and call yourself a saint. The anointing of God will make every Choice, life or death, prosperity or destruction. Oh, come on. When the anointing of God first entered the world, it came in Genesis, the first chapter, by way of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And when he hovered over the waters, looking at the death and destruction, what happened? God said, let there be light. And there was immediate separation. 
Dark was dark, light was light, and there was nothing in between. There was an evening and there was a morning. God saw it and said, it's good that we can see a distinction now. The anointing of God brings you to a place where you can see what is life and what is death. And then the scripture compels us. Choose life. Oh man, how unclear it is for so many. It's like I can kind of do this and it's not really that, so it'll be okay. The anointing won't let you do that. The anointing is in you, teaching you. If we learn to depend on the very first element in the sacred anointing oil, then everything becomes a matter of life and death. Someone in our ministry today, when they were becoming acquainted with us, said, Why are they always so serious? Because we're anointed. That's why. When God's divine power has entered you, you do not see sin and holiness as trivial any longer. Because he was born and anointed for his death for you. How dare we trivialize that? Watch the passion of Christ with a little popcorn and maybe some Andy's mints. Saints, when you're anointed of God, one of the ways that you know it is darkness gets really dark and the light gets really light and you stop seeing gray everywhere. You stop living in the what you may be able to get away with and you start living in the what you know God has said is life in prosperity. Is it getting clear for you now? Yes. Oh man, the night that his anointing entered me. There was no part of my life, no part of my room, no part of any relationship, no part of me that was left somewhere in the middle. It was all Jesus or die trying. Where are you tonight? The second ingredient is maybe more powerful than the first. Do we have your attention yet? Cinnamon is a strange word. It's the same in almost every language. In some hundred languages, the phonetic sound is the same. Cinnamon is the second ingredient in the anointing oil of God. And it comes from two Hebrew words. Here, kenal and mean. Kenal mean, cinnamon. You can hear that relationship, can't you? What is very interesting is that this kenal is jealousy or envy. And mean is a kind of uh, species or a particular variety. Most people don't consider that jealousy is a good thing. Most people would never think of jealousy as something that you would want or that God is. That's because they're not familiar with the species of jealousy we're talking about. They're not familiar with the kind of jealousy we're talking about. But when the anointing of God hits you, you begin to understand the jealousy of God. Exodus 20 and verse 5. You shall not bow down to them 
or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Oh man, have you ever put too much cinnamon in your coffee? Have you ever seen the cinnamon challenge? Anybody? It seems like you should be able to do it, but I dare you to try. Cinnamon is not just some sweet, savory thing that you can sprinkle in your coffee. If you get it in a concentrated form of a high enough quality, it lights you on fire. It feels very much like pepper. God wants you to know he's not just some kind of truffle to decorate your meal. He is a jealous God. And he's watching what you do. Most of all, he's watching what you love. And when you love things that he hates, it makes him jealous. Oh man, have you ever seen a jealous man or woman? It's a dangerous thing. can be stalker material. What do you think it's like to make God Almighty jealous of what you're doing? The anointing of God brings it home. It shows you he's not the Stay puffed Marshmallow Man. He's not there as the giant genie in the sky. He is like a husband jealous for his bride's attention. You feel the call to pray? You feel the call to read? You feel the call to draw near to your king? Netflix is right there. You don't really feel like you're trading God's glory for Netflix because, I mean, it's all covered under grace. What if you've succeeded in rousing the very jealousy of God for your time and attention? And what if you've pushed him past the place where he's giving you a polite hint? How long would you watch your wife show affection to the neighbor before you acted? I can tell you, mine's teaching children right now, so I can get away with telling stories all about her life. When I moved to this town, I moved here to start a church. I've given my life to the work of God from 18 till now. And whatever's left of it, I'm going to die in his service. That's really living. When we moved to this town, we were blessed and my wife didn't have to work. And there was this one divorcee that was always hanging around the elementary school. He's always chatting up everybody's wives. And I felt bad for him, right? His wife and he, no longer acquainted, he's trying to figure out how to raise his kids and he's looking for help. The problem is, is that I came home at 2 in the afternoon and he's parked by my mailbox talking to my wife who is gardening. I can see that she's annoyed. Doesn't know how to get rid of him because he's parked there. So I walked up to this kind gentleman, put my arm around him. I said, it's really good to see you here at my house as I've come home today. If when I come home tomorrow, I see you around my house, you will not be happy to see me. Do you know why? She's my wife. It's not about insecurity. It's not because I'm concerned what she will do. It's because we have given ourselves to each other. 
It's because there is no other. There's not even pictures of anyone else. There is only us because God has made us one. What does your relationship with the Lord look like? Does he need to throw his arm around somebody in your life and say, I don't expect to see you around this whenever they belong to me? Because he is a jealous God. And he will not share you. He will not date you. You cannot G-harmony him and just try him out. It won't work. You can't go to igaveup.com and just pick a new spouse. He wants all of you. And you know when that becomes real for the first time in your life? When the grace of God really hits you. See, because when he's done for you what you couldn't do for yourself, in fact, what nobody had ever been able to do for you, when you experience the freedom of the supernatural power of God, you love him. And you realize that he loves you. And you won't trade something so precious for something so trivial. Makes me wonder who has experienced the real grace of God. In Exodus 34, 14, he says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. I want you to try to wrap your mind around that. It's not just that he is jealous, it's that his name is jealous. His character, his authority, his body of work, his reputation, the Hashem of God is in fact jealous. If you had a jealous spouse, that might make you a little uncomfortable. It might feel a little controlling. You might wonder about everything that you do. Generally, we associate that kind of jealousy with sin. But if your jealous spouse is God, it creates in you a desire to leave sin and run to holiness. Amen. His name is Jealous. Oh, let that sink in for a minute. He's not sharing you with your Instagram account. He's not sharing you with the petty loves of your life. He is jealous. He is the ultimate. And the anointing of God helps make that clear to you. I listed the scriptures at the bottom because I don't intend to read them all. And I want you to be able to get them online. Go with me to James 4, the fifth verse. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more? Let that, let that settle in on you for a minute. Because he is jealous, what does he give you more of? He gives you the ability to be more devoted to Him in grace. He gives you supernatural desire for Him because He's jealous. Oh, man. What is the solution to God's jealousy? It's a greater work of grace in your life that causes you to see it as life and death, that causes you to go, I need Him and I can't live without Him, not just for an hour at church, but every hour. 
Can you honestly sit here and tell me that you feel good knowing about the jealousy of God and the way that you have lived this month? Can you honestly tell me that? Let me just say I know that you can't. Because the anointing of God never rests on its laurels and says, you know, I've given enough of myself to him. The price was always all, no matter how much all was. It was all of your life, all of your attention, all of your devotion. It was always all. How sad that we think what he deserves was our eight-year-old commitment at an altar. That was never the price. The price was always all. And he's jealous for what belongs to him. If you would not hang out at my mailbox in the middle of the day at 3 o'clock chatting up my wife, please don't think God will let you chat up all of your loves in the middle of the day, but it's okay because Wednesday night's coming. That's not grace. Grace is power over sin. Somebody say amen in the house of God. Fragrant cane. Fragrant cane, third element. This is such an interesting element. Fragrant cane. Basam is the word fragrant. And surprisingly, it means fragrant. That's important. And it's important because when you find out what is cane, you will want the kind that is fragrant. A masculine noun meaning a rod, a stalk, a reed, a calmus reed, beam of scales. It is generally, uh, I'm sorry, it is a general term that can be used of any object in form of a long stalk or tubular shape. The word was used in various ways of other objects, but most often being a... (laughs) One of the great components of God's anointing is a heavenly standard, a divine ruler, a means of measuring yourself and the rest of the world. And it is fragrant. It's beautiful. If you hate the standard, it's because you're not anointed of God. If you love the standard, it's because the anointing has made you love the standard. Do you know who hates the standard? Those who are not living up to it. They hate it because it points out their sin. Of course, if it's pointing out your sin, what do you need more of? Grace. Not grace that says you didn't sin. Not grace that pretends like it's just all a wash. But the supernatural power of God to meet the standard. That is what grace is. Isaiah 42 verse 3 is a famous passage. A bruised reed, cane, he will not break. And a smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. Let's talk about that for a minute. Have you bruised the standard in your life? When I'm preaching to you about the things that we're talking about, are you stung in certain areas? Is this a bruise the fruit message to you? 
Because the anointing of God is not here to put you to death. He's not here to snuff out the little bit of flame that you have left. In fact, in faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law, the islands put their hope. The anointing of God brings a standard that says, you know what? With my grace, you can measure up to this. I think one of the most discouraging things that happens in church people sit and they say, I want what they're talking about, but I don't really believe that I can have it because any time I've ever gotten to know Christians, any time I've ever actually prayed and asked Jesus, I just ended up right back in the same sin. Then you have not experienced the grace of God because the grace of God is power over sin. Do you hear how important that distinction is now? I've been preaching about it for 30-something minutes, and you know what? I think we could preach about it for 30 years because you rarely hear it anywhere else. Grace is power over sin. Grace does not simply erase sin. How are you doing with the standard? In Ezekiel 40, in verse 3, He took me there, and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. That is the same word as what is in the anointing oil. See, the anointing oil as an ingredient has to do with measuring up in God's eyes. The anointing will help you measure up in God's eyes. Can you imagine saying, I don't go for all of that Holy Spirit stuff. You don't care about measuring up in God's eyes? And then enter the petty theologians that say, no, I already do, even though my actions deny his existence every day. What a sad state we're in. In Matthew 27, we see another state exactly like it. This is the Greek cognate for the Hebrew kenai. Matthew 27, 29. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and sat it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Does your life mock the very standard of God? Do you say, oh yeah, I love him, I know he's holy, he has saved me, and then you live exactly the same today as you did last week, last month? Do you say the grace of God is covering my sin when you are repeating the same sin? How is that any different than staring Jesus Christ in the face, putting the fragrant cane in his hand and mocking him to his face? But God can't be mocked. At least not forever. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff. That staff is fragrant cane. And struck him on the head again and again. They took the very sweet standard of God that he brought into the world. And they beat him with his own fragrant 
came. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? It's exactly what Christians do when we abuse the grace of God. It is exactly what we're doing when we say, ah, I know it's the third time this month that I've been baptizing my mind in the world, but uh, praise God for the grace of God. That's not grace. You have taken the standard that was meant to be a fragrant cane and used it as a club to beat the king of kings in the face with. Wow, that's serious, isn't it? Of course, the grace of God was not sent to show you how you, how short you fall of the standard. It was not there to take the bruised standard and break it or the smoldering wick and snuff it out. The anointing of God was supposed to enter into your life so that you could meet the standard. See, the anointing of God will help you do what you could not do any other way. But the very first step, friends, was that it must be life or death. If you sit in this church wondering about how long the service will go and what you're going to eat afterwards and whether your favorite show was DVD'd, can it really be life and death for you? I've noticed that when it does become life and death for people, when someone you love is in the hospital about to die, or when you are in trouble, you get much more serious about things like the standards of God. In fact, you very rarely walk past a hospital room and hear somebody about to die talking about, well, praise God, it was all covered under the grace. In fact, I've never heard that. People that are actually in the grace are praising him with their last breath, not talking about how his work excused their vile life. Revelation 11.1, 1, we see that same word for fragrant cane. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. When the anointing of God enters your life, it's not just life and death. It's not just that you have a revelation of God's jealous nature and His desire for you. For the first time, you start to be able to understand the height, width, breadth, and depth of His habitation. You start to know what a church should look like. You start to know what a Christian life should look like. All of a sudden, the anointing is there that says, you know what, I can't do that because it wouldn't measure up. What I have to do is this because I can see it. I can smell it. I can use the rod in my hand to measure it. Grace gives you the ability to see the world as God sees it. Grace shows you what is important. He strips away the deception that says you can live like hell all the way to heaven. Revelation 21 is the last mention of the fragrant cane in the scripture. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod, a cane, a piece of cane, a measuring rod of gold to measure the city its gates and its walls. Friends, the fragrant cane is really like pure gold. Once you understand that God will help you measure up if it's a matter of life and death, 
He will help you measure up if you take his jealousy of your life seriously. Once you get the holy mixture and you begin to smear your life with it, that rod doesn't become a stick to beat Jesus with. It becomes something that is golden and beautiful and helps you understand the habitation of God. One of the ways I know just how lost our theologians are is the way that they describe the kingdom of God. They're like children that have been told a fairy tale and it's nowhere found in the Bible. They want an off-world, other planetary experience because they have not lived in this world for His kingdom and they don't understand at all that that kingdom is being set up here now through our actions. And the fulfillment of it is when the king comes with that righteous scepter in his hand. How real is the kingdom to come to you? Is it just, well, I don't want to go to hell when I die? Is it, well, I, praise God, I know they're in a better place? Or are you seeing the kingdom hourly in your life? You're beginning to understand its height, its width, its breadth. You're beginning to understand that you are living in his kingdom now so you can no longer live as a miserable sinner. See, the anointing will help you do that. Grace helps you do that. Our next element, <clears throat> cassia. It's our fourth element. Cassia is an amazing one. As a noun, it simply means cassia bark. As a verb, the very same word in Hebrew, just used in a different way in the sentence, means a kindled fire. The anointing of God is a kindled fire. This is how into the church vernacular we've said put some fire in your sermons. This is how we have talked about the fire of God is because the anointing brings a blazing fire into your life. Jeremiah 20 and verse 9. But if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Do you see how the anointing of God had overcome every area of Jeremiah's life? He was no longer living for sinful pleasures. Grace had taught him to say no to ungodliness. He was unable to stop seeing the kingdom, stop speaking of the kingdom, stop loving the king of the kingdom. If he stopped, he could feel raging fire in him, compelling him forward. How about you? never a more uncomfortable time in my life when we don't have something scheduled for Jesus. I hate it. Everybody looks forward to vacation time when there's nothing to do. I do not. I don't know what to do with myself when there is nothing to do. I spent years in a purposeless existence. I refuse to go back to it and call it a vacation. Your life should have the kingdom's fire in it. 
so that even if you find yourself without occupational duties that day or without domestic duties that day, you have a fire burning in you to get into the presence of God that day because he's jealous for you. It's become life or death to you. His measuring fragrant cane has become sweet smelling to you and you can't live without him. Now, not everybody experienced what Jeremiah experienced. There were always been cessationists. Turns out that he ceases to move when you believe he ceases to move. It's very sad. It's self-fulfilling prophecy for people that don't believe in prophecy. It's okay. God does not believe in cessationists. In Deuteronomy 32, 22. For a fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realm of death below. It will devour the earth and its harvest and set afire the foundations of the mountains. It turns out that when God offers you his anointing of kindled fire and you don't want it, it kindles a different kind of fire in him. Can you imagine that you have aroused the jealousy of God to the point that he is burning with fire that will destroy the earth? Because the Bible promises that it will happen. And it promises it in the fifth book of the Bible and the 32nd chapter. He knew what the response would be to his precious anointing. Some very few would die to get it, and that's the only way that you can. Many more would go on with the life they had, claiming to have it, and the only fire that would be burning would be God's wrath against them. We don't like to talk about God's wrath anymore. We think that's old-time preaching. We think that's not the way to build big churches. I don't give a damn about a big church. Never have. That word offends you. It shouldn't offend you. Paul used it. Jesus used it. Maybe we could reclaim it and use it rightly. I bet there's lots of words that you use in text that do offend Jesus that are not in the Bible. The goal of Christianity is not to build the biggest assembly center that we can and pack it with people that God's fire is kindled against, but they don't have a fire kindled for God. That is not the goal of Christianity. The way you build those places, by the way, is you teach people that grace covers everything they do, no matter how wicked they are. The goal is a people that look and act like God, that have been divinely enabled by Him to overcome sin. If you have 5,000 people crammed into your circus church and not five of them can do the things that are described in the Bible, not 10 of them can do what the clown teaching every week does. You have to bring in somebody from the outside from a bigger circus to come speak at your carnal kingdom just to keep the crowds entertained. Forgive me, I'm not going to pretend it's church. Amen. 
The church of the living God has a fire kindled in it that matches God's own fire. A hatred of sin. A loving of what is righteous. And I want to tell you, if we will not kindle a fire for God, He will kindle a fire against us. Look at Isaiah 50 and verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the words of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Does it sound like God is seeker-sensitive, begging people to be saved? Not at all. He is jealous. For him, it is life or death. It's myrrh. For him, there is a fragrant, heavenly standard. For him, this is a burning fire situation. And when we don't want it, we warm ourselves with something else. He does not beg us. You will never find Jesus chasing after someone, begging them to pray the sinner's prayer. You will never find Jesus lowering the standard saying, it's okay, you can sin, I'll forgive you, it's okay. You never see it. He is the ultimate. And if he he is that to you, nobody will have to even encourage you to go after him. The whole world could try to stop you and you couldn't be stopped because... Grace is pushing you forward. The worst thing that we have done in our church's history is try to encourage goats that they are sheep. If you don't want the Lord, you don't have to have it. We're not going to beg you to come to this church. Nobody. It's not going to happen. He is either worth it, more important than cleaning your house, more important than your work project, more important than whatever idolatrous thing you put before him, or he's not. And if he is not more important than that, then you will get from him the kind of fire you never gave to him. Wow, that's a part of the gospel. It's a part of the heavenly and holy mixture. Is that incredible? Have you noticed that for pastors, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't? One thing I don't want to be is damned. If you don't come to church three weeks in a row, I'm supposed to call you. But when I do call you, you're mad that I called you and singled you out. So which is it? Am I supposed to beg you to be here? Or am I supposed to not care whether you're here or not? I want you to care. You hear me? I want you to have a burning passion for the Lord. And if you don't, I'm going to tell you a secret. I can't do it for you. Never, never has there been a human being that can do it for you. Even Jesus doesn't do it for you. He simply makes it available if you want it. Amen. Look at Matthew 3 in verse 11. I will baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That sounds like a good thing. In fact, you hear people say, I want to be baptized in fire. I don't think you understand the verse, friend. His winnowing fork is in his hand. A winnowing fork is an instrument of separation. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You either want the anointing of God and it's a raging fire within you, or he will burn you from heaven because sin ruled your life and you never took advantage of the grace that could have been yours. Oh, man. The fifth element in the anointing oil. We are soon going to worship because I'm hoping that you want the divine work of God's grace in your life is olive oil. Olive oil is interesting because if you just had fragrant cane, if you just had cinnamon, if you just had myrrh, there would be no way to anoint somebody with that. The heavenly mixture, the holy mixture, it doesn't work without an agency to move through. See, all of those things are suspended in the olive oil. It is the agency that everything else works through. In Exodus 25... In verse 6, olive oil is for light. In Exodus 35, 8, olive oil is for light. Now listen to Psalm 36 and verse 7. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink. From your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. And in your light we see light. Olive oil symbolizes in the anointing oil. That light of God that helps you see everything as God sees it. It is that moment in which a spiritual light goes off in you. And it makes everything else desirable. The cane becomes fragrant. The cinnamon becomes desirable. The myrrh becomes necessary in every way. It holds all of them together because now you can see something you've never seen before. An unanointed life is a dead life. An unanointed life is a life separated from God. A life without the grace of God is a life of slavery. And you don't want that anymore. The only way you can get olive oil is to have crushed and pressed the olives till they're going to die. And it's the only way that you get that out of you. I wish that we sought God in our prosperity. We seek Him in our spiritual poverty. If only people knew how poor they were. Those that were poor in the churches of Asia Minor were told they were actually rich. And those who thought they were rich were told they were actually poor. It turns out we're not very good at seeing ourselves rightly. So God put an element in the anointing oil that he says is for light. And in his light, we see light. 
When you become anointed of God, when His grace starts to work in your life, it'll be the first time in your whole life you've understood God and the creation and your place in it. It'll be the first time. And you begin to long to fulfill that. I knelt with the men in my family right here today and we put God's anointing oil on our hands and on our head and we said, Almighty God, help us fulfill the purpose for which we were born. I can't live a meaningless life. I can't go on to one more meaningless meeting. We have to fulfill the purpose on our lives. In His light, I see light. I was born to tell people about the reality of the kingdom, to move them off the position that they were in. And with all of my heart, I'm trying to be that instrument in his hand tonight. Will you be unmovable? Isaiah 63 is a very great question. In verse 8, He said, surely they are my people, sons who will not be false to me. And so he became their savior. Oh man, is that good? In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days old. Yet they rebelled and grieved his spirit. So he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. He became their savior, and because they grieved his spirit, he fought against them? Our theologians say that can't happen. I guess Isaiah was wrong. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea? With the shepherd of his flock, where is he who sent, sat his Holy Spirit among them? Who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand? What was the Holy Spirit called? God's glorious arm of power. You know where the word charismatic comes from? Charis means grace. Mata means gift. They're supposed to be his grace gifts. His power over sin, gifts. The power to stop sinning, gifts. The Holy Spirit does not come to make you sing well. He comes to free you from sin so that whatever you're gifted to do, you do well. And who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown. Who led them through the depths like a horse in open country. They did not stumble like cattle that go down to the plain. They were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. But you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us, or Israel acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer of old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we do not revere you. 
Return for the sake of your servants. The tribes are your inheritance. Do you hear what has happened? They were saved and the Holy Spirit's power was moving mightily among them. They were anointed. There was power over sin, but they grieved God's Spirit. And so their lives became base, ordinary, demented. There is nothing sadder than a demonized Christian. But all that has to happen is you stop doing what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. This caused David in Psalm 51 verse 11 to say, Do not cast me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Friends, are you living a life of dependency on His Spirit? Would you say that for you, the anointing of God is literally life and death? Would you say that you are inflamed with the jealousy of God? That you hunger and yearn for Him like He hungers and yearns for you? Would you say that the fragrant measuring rod of God's standard is what you are living for? Would you say that you have a burning fire for the Lord kindled in your soul? Do you see the world as God sees it? Have you been squeezed impressed so that God's light is the agency with which you are moving in? How can we be anointed if those things are not true? We have so overused the word. We have so misunderstood the word. Literally, to be anointed was to be smeared with, but the question remains, smeared with what? Smeared with the substance of God. Peter says you have been made a participator in the very nature, the divine nature of God. Can you really participate in God's divine nature and go on sinning? What would you be joining God to? The answer that he gives the tribes of Israel who said we evidently grieved your spirit because our lives are based, don't forget us, is Acts 1.8. That is the answer. But you will receive power. What will you receive? Power. power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. The Holy Spirit is the grace of God moving in your life. Power. Not just forgiveness of sins. Not excusing them. Not acting like they didn't happen. You have power to not repeat them. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What will you be witnessing? Oh, well, we will be explaining that Jesus is um, the Son of God, that He had a substitutionary death for us. Okay. I bet nobody cares if you live exactly like they're living. If you are doing the same things in secret, they are doing. If you are no more free from sin, then are you not the man that the Scripture says is promising them freedom while you're a slave of depravity yourself? So what will you be witnessing? That you were once bound, but now you stand here not theologically, but honestly free. 
that you are standing here no longer the wicked sinner that you were. Your actual daily character has been transformed that through a power that was supernatural and not of your making, God changed you. He set you free and you are completely and totally born of heaven. Totally new. That's what we witness to the other ends of the earth. That is entirely different than the tepid theology that we have learned to spit out. You know why we practice our theology like swordsmen play with swords? Because we have no testimony of power over sin in our own lives. You stand up and tell people what bound you and that it literally has no place in your life now. And I promise everyone who is bound with that chain will want to figure out how you got it off. Do you hear me? If you're standing next to someone that had cancer and now does not have cancer and you know that you do, don't tell me you don't ask them what they eat. Don't tell me you don't ask them that you're, you're, you're not saying, how did your situation change? Our problem is, is that we're witnessing of something we've not actually experienced most of the time. So then church just becomes where you grew up, where you were raised. It becomes a cultural thing. Let me use it one more time for you. Damn all that. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's a matter of power. You either have power over sin or you should be on your face begging for the anointing of God to enter you in a holy mixture that sets you free from the low living that has dominated you. In Acts, I'm sorry, in Exodus 30, 29, you shall consecrate them so they will be most holy. And whatever touches them will be holy. When the priests were anointed with God's heavenly mixture, whoever the priests touched were considered holy. You want to know whether you're anointed or not? What mark has your life left on the lives around you? Anger, discord, jealousy, bitterness, rage, factions, dissensions? That's not anointed. What has your life done to the people who come into contact with you because in acts 26 17 paul is recounting the effect of the anointing in his life i will rescue you from your own people and from gentiles i am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of satan to god so they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified By faith in me, when you ran into the Apostle Paul because of the anointing that was in him, whatever was darkness in you was changed to light. Is that the effect you're having on the world around you? If it's not, maybe you need a greater work of grace in your life. Maybe you've settled for something less than authentic. i got to tell you, I've become very leery of people who were saved in church. And the reason I've become leery of people who were saved in church is because we walk you through every step. We do it for you. It's like, hey, just, just pray after me. Okay, no, no word from, 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 came from your mouth. It was all my own theological creation, but you seem to agree with it, so we're going to call you saved. 
The people that I know that I know that I know are saved were the ones that were not in churches. And their life totally changed. And they came running to a church to find out more about what God was doing to them. And yet here I stand in a church. So I'm obviously not against it. But I want the real thing. Not some ridiculous, wrote, memorized, canned religious ritual. And the longer the church brat's been in church, the worse they play the game. So that even they are deceived about themselves. But you know what you really can't be deceived about? You know what you know and the Holy Ghost knows? How you're actually living. No liar enters the kingdom of God. Do you know that? No liar enters the kingdom of God. If you are lying on a weekly basis, you're not in the kingdom of God. It's really that clear. Do you know that no drunkard enters the kingdom of God? Nobody who is sexually immoral enters the kingdom of God. You can have been those things. But when the grace of God enters your life, you are them no longer. He is power over sin. You leave it behind. If it's still in your life, you didn't leave it behind. So aren't we sanctified? Let's not quibble over details. You know exactly what I'm saying. If you continue to live in sin, you are not in his kingdom. If you are at war with sin and it is decreasing in your life and grace is growing in your life, then there will be evidence to you and every other person. In Exodus 30, verse 30, Anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so they may serve me as priest. What happens if the priest says, I don't feel like it. I don't think so. You know, I'm just not sure that that fivefold heavenly holy mixture is for me. It's not, you know, my background. Then he can't be a priest, right? So what does Acts 1-4 say? Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, for which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you can't be a priest without the anointing oil of God consecrating you, how is it that you can be a priest in the Newer Testament without being baptized with the Holy Ghost? Well, I'm just not ready. Well, then you're still in your sin. I thought you didn't have to speak in tongues to get saved. You never heard me say that you had to. Thief on the cross certainly didn't. You get to. Don't have to. It's not an issue of salvation. It's an issue of an ever-increasing empowerment over sin. It's an issue of an ever-yielding life. Do you really think that you can look at God and say... I'm not willing to go the next step, and he's going to live with that? Do you really think that? Now, I have a real bone to pick with my United Pentecostal brothers. You cannot scare somebody into being empowered by the Holy Ghost, and I have no intention to try. You either want him with all of your heart in a burning fire, or you don't. And if you don't, I have no particular compulsion to try to make you. 
the people I know that have been the most empowered by the Lord would have kicked down the walls, eaten through concrete to get empowered from heaven because they could not live the way they were living anymore. For them, <clears throat> it became a matter of life and death. Which begs the question, is it ever not a, power, a, a matter of life and death? We live in a time when Exodus 30, 33 is being violated everywhere. Whoever makes perfume like it and whoever puts it on anyone other than a priest must be cut off from his people. We think we can make our own unholy mixture. We think if we get the lights right, the sounds right, the chairology right, that that will substitute. 1 John 2.27 says so clearly, As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his holy, as his anointing teaches you about all things, and that anointing is real and not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. When you're anointed of God and it's not a counterfeit, it shows up in power over sin. It shows up in you wanting to remain in Him and Him helping you remain in Him. Can I tell you? Your friends start dropping like flies. It's hard to remain in Him. But the anointing will help you. Your family turns their back on you and it's hard. But His anointing will help you. Nobody had to chase down the pastors of this church and make sure we stayed saved. Never happened. In fact, we were persecuted at every turn. And we lost Every friend we had, we lost most of the family that we had. And you know what? You could not keep us because the anointing was in us like a burning fire. We wanted to hit the standard of God. With all of our heart, we were as jealous for Him as He was for us. For us, it was life and death. I pray that that happens for you. We'll have the worship team come here and I have two more scriptures that I want to share with you. So worship team, y'all can walk up here. In John 16, in verse 7. Say there when you are there. It's two scriptures. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good. Say it's for my good. It's for your good that I am going away. Can you imagine that Jesus Christ would say that it was good for anybody that he was leaving them? Can you imagine that you would ever say, hey, ever since Jesus left, it's been good? Come on now. This has got to be the most nonsensical sentence in the world. It's good for you that I'm leaving you. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Why was it good that Jesus was going away? Because he was sending the very anointing that was inside of him, the very divine presence of God that guaranteed his holiness, the very divine presence of God that helped him walk in the light of the Lord. He was sending that power to you. 
You ever thought if I had been there, I would have walked with Jesus? Have you ever thought if I could have just sat next to him, if I could have just shared a meal with him? He said, it's better for you that I am away from you, but my spirit is with you. We have it better because we can have the anointing of God than if Jesus were sitting next to you in the flesh. We have it better. Do we treat it like that, though? Do we treat his spirit as that precious, that costly? Is he life and death to us? Or would you rather have lived in another century? Come on, saints. Listen to what's happening here. We have not appropriately valued that which God values. We have not depended upon him like we must depend upon him. And if we would, we would find power that we have not yet found. Can you live with the fact that the first century church walked in a power we seldom see? Can you really live with that? No. See, I can't. I cannot live with that. Because he's the same God. He's the same spirit. The only thing different in the equation is me. How costly. How precious is the anointing to you? Do you know that in Israel, if you made the formula wrong, it was a death penalty. If you gave the formula to somebody other than a priest, it was a death penalty. This was the most precious guarded thing in the world. And Jesus says, I'm sending him to you. Our last passage for the evening. And then we're going to worship and do something that very few churches do. We're going to get out of the way and let the Holy Ghost do with you whatever He wants to do. And not just with you, with me too. Ephesians 1, verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, say having believed. The Holy Spirit is for people who already believe. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Now, as we are closing... Please don't let familiar language just float over the top of your head. He is guaranteeing something. What is he guaranteeing? Your inheritance. So how precious is he really? He is as precious as anything you ever hoped to inherit from God. Think about that. He's like a deposit that is worth every bit as much as what is put on deposit for. You put a deposit, a lesser value, on something of greater value to show you have interest, right? You put $500 down on the car so the uh, guy in the slick suit will save it for you, right? Who puts down more than the car is worth? Who does that? God. Why? Because he wanted you have power over sin. He wanted you to have 
everything that you needed, just the right heavenly, holy mixture so that you could represent him right on earth. How dare we treat that as something trite or trivial? How could we not yearn for every bit of that anointing? So walk through them again. Start with myrrh. Is this really life and death for you? Is it? Do your actions reflect that or do you need to adjust your action? Do you have a righteous jealousy for the Lord that matches His righteous jealousy for you? Or do you need to adjust your actions? Do you live by the same standard that God lives by? Or do you live by a lesser standard? Do you lower that standard if you like the people and raise it if you don't? Do you have a fire kindled in you? A fire that hates sin and loves righteousness that looks like God's fire. Do you have that? Is there a spiritual light blazing in you that is giving you insight into how to deal with everything in your life? Because those are the holy mixture the heavenly mixture of anointing oil that God will put in you if you ask Him. When that happens, do you know what you'll say? I've truly experienced His grace and there's evidence of it in my life. Until then, you may have received a counterfeit. That's what the real thing looks like. I want everybody in this room to walk in that. Because if you do, the world will be better for it. If you do, people who touch you will become holy. People who encounter you will be moved from darkness to light. It is not God's will that a single man be a model for a church. It's God's will that a church become a model for the whole world. That's His will. You cannot elect me or Matthew or Wade, your champion, to be the model Christian for you while you live like hell. You have to become what God has called you to be or we all fail because it's our job to help you get there. Please stand to your feet.